0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hi, I'm Hetty McKinnon, and welcome to The Kitchen Table here on The History Listen. I'm a food writer, and even though I've penned a number of cookbooks, I'm definitely no expert in food and wine pairing. Although, I do love sipping a silky Pinot Noir alongside an earthy wild mushroom salad. Yes, you guessed it. This episode of our Epicurean history adventure is all about wine. Wine for
2: me is everything in one convenient glass. It's history, it's conviviality, it's chemistry, it's art, it's science, it's ceremony,
0: it's spirituality. Think about wine in the Bible. To me, wine is not essential for life. It's essential for living. It's part of what makes life worth living. It's part of what also binds us together if we enjoy wine, good company, good food. That's what it is. The
3: glass of wine, let's say at the end of vintage, is great. And it is an absolute joy when people come to the cellar door and say, love your wines, I want some more. That's the icing on the cake. But the making of the cake is the production in the vineyard. Meet Jenny, Chris and Max,
1: a wine grower, a wine maker and a wine writer. One works in a cellar, one in a vineyard, and the other in our imagination. You make a smile on the
0: Lindemar. A sparkling porphyry pearl. Buy sparkling porphyry pearl from Metropolitan Bottle Departments for eight and six a large bottle. For
2: those occasions when you're not sure what you're having for dinner, bring along the wine that's correct with any dish Blue Nun. The delicious imported white wine that goes Who wants to be a millionaire? You don't get this popular without being this good.
0: Who wants a private landing future? In Benin for my the, number one wine. the reason why wine is so revered and has been so revered is because grapes, for their weight, have the highest amount of complex carbohydrate of any fruit. So, what we're talking about is that from the earliest days of, of humans beginning to, to a certain extent, copy what animals did in terms of perhaps eating slightly rotten, in inverted commas, fermenting fruit, and then collecting that ripe fruit and storing it. The fruit that produced the highest ethanol content was grapes, as opposed to other fruits that would have been stored and fermented. Now, that high alcohol content is really important because it's not just... You know what I refer to is you know, the the classic statement, "drinking the god," which means intoxication. You know you can speak to the gods or speak like a god, or, or so on. But it's also because that higher ethanol means it will last as a beverage, as a palatable beverage, stored in whatever it is—a goat skin or an amphorae or a barrel or whatever—it'll last for much longer as a palatable beverage as to any of those other beverages. So it is valued from that point of view as well because it has this combination of drinking the god plus my god it tastes magnificent. My name's Chris Barnes. I'm lecturer in wine technology and viticulture at the University of Melbourne Dookie campus in the the beautiful Golden Valley and I'm also winemaker here at the uh, historic Dookie Winery built in 1896.
1: So wine is a bit of a mystery when you consider that humans have been making it since the Stone Age. But what about wine in this country? When did vines arrive in Australia? And were they from cuttings smuggled inside somebody's socks?
2: The first grapevines arrived in 1788. I'm not sure whether they were smuggled in somebody's socks, but they would have probably been packed in, in sawdust. Um, but the first, the first successful commercial vines probably came from the, from the Cape, from South Africa. I'm Max Allen. I'm a, a writer, journalist, and author of Intoxicating, 10 Drinks That Shaped Australia. There are a few wineries across Australia that have been operating non-stop since the very early 19th century. Um, I write about a vineyard called Dalwood, which has operated on and off, and there's always been a vineyard there on and off since the 1830, I think, was the first year that it was planted. So almost 200 years. So we do have this incredible tradition of winemaking in this country, but they're isolated pockets, like the Barossa Valley in, in South Australia, like Great Western in Victoria, and like the Hunter Valley in New South Wales, Swan Valley in Western Australia, where there's been continuous production, and you can walk into some of those cellars and you you really feel this this patina of history. It's it's almost like walking into a cellar in Europe. And in fact, some of our wineries here in Australia are older than some of the most famous wineries in in France. Um, Part of the reason for that is that we, um, in a lot of places in Australia, never had phylloxera, the vine louse that destroyed vineyards right across France in the mid to late 19th century didn't get to some parts of Australia. So we've got vineyards here that are older than some of the oldest vineyards in Europe. Okay, so what you what we're gonna try now, and you can probably smell it from here, even though it's in a very, very tiny bottle, is a wine from Glen in uh, North East Victoria. It's amazing. Mm. Um, and it's um, a wine that's been drawn from a barrel that's been sitting in the All Saints Winery in Glen for a hundred years.
1: Cheers. <laughs> I
3: want to savour this.
1: It's beautiful.
2: It's amazing. Christmas pudding.
1: There is something oh, wicked be, 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 be in too. drinking oh, history Christmas like pudding? this, but why not?
2: The ultimate expression of the flavours in a, in a grape.
1: Wine is for drinking.
2: Or it's it's nothing at all. And it's also been in barrel for a hundred years. So the last time there was a pandemic.
1: A hundred years ago, when this fortified wine was put into its barrel, the southeastern corner of Australia was to be the British Empire's source of wool, wheat and wine. Wool and wheat were a great success. But the story of wine, it waxed and waned. And this is the story Max Allen's put into his book. Oz
2: Clark places a 40-year-old bottle of Coonawarra Shiraz gently on the table. He's been waiting a long time to open this. As he picks up his corkscrew, he sees my smartphone. Do you want to video this, he says. Of course I do. I've travelled all the way to Putney in South London, to the house of one of the world's most famous wine writers for this moment, to share his last remaining bottle of 1978 Rouge, A serious wine with a silly name, made at a time when Australia's reputation in the rest of the world was at an all-time low. It's probably the last remaining bottle in the world, I absolutely want to document it for posterity, or at the very least, post it as an Instagram story. So I pick up my phone, open the camera app, tap record, and Oz slips immediately into performance mode. This, he says, grabbing the corkscrew and looking straight into the phone's tiny lens.
0: This is is a moment that has got triumph and disaster
2: is a moment that has got triumph and disaster
0: writ large upon it in pretty much equal measure.
2: Writ large upon it in pretty much equal measure.
0: My dear, darling,
2: much-loved last bottle of kangaroo. And with that, the decades disappear.
1: <laughs> Malcolm insisted we brought some wine. Oh, how very kind of It's you. a new Australian label. Australian? Here's the white.
0: Wombat white.
1: And the red?
0: Kangarooge.
1: Malcolm bought them especially for you. And you know how he loves a really good wine.
0: Yes, which is why he's giving this rubbish to us.
2: So, in a sense, when I went to see Oz, it was like coming full circle because it was because of him, I think that I that I got into doing what I'm doing today. Uh, he was huge on the on the television in England when I was growing up there in the in the 80s and, and early 90s, and he he talked about wine on a, on a food show. Um, and he and his partner, Jilly Goulden, just used this ridiculously enthusiastic, colourful language for wine that, that became a bit of a joke for a lot of people, but also sucked a hell of a lot of people into wine. They looked as though they were having the best time of their lives, mm-hmm. and people watched them and said, well, if wine gives you that pleasure, I want some of that, you know? And so Oz Clark was a, is still a um, very well-known wine writer, television personality, presenter. Um, and as I say, it's because of him that I'm here.
1: In the TV documentary Chateau Chanda, made for the ABC in 2012 by Stephen Oliver, Oz Clark tries to redeem the reputation of Rouge.
0: I've got a bottle here of Rouge. That, that was the wine that people now laugh at. They've never tried it, the people who laughed at it. I've tried it, i drank lots of this stuff. Just see what that says there. Kunawara, Shiraz, 1978, not plonk, not rubbish, top area of South Australia, top grape, top year, and down there, alcohol 10.9. And it tasted as rich and as juicy and as gorgeous as could be. If people laugh about this, they don't know what they're talking about.
1: But laugh they did, especially Monty Python, in 1972 with this sketch called Australian Table Wines.
0: A lot of people in this country poo poo Australian Table Wines. This is a pity as many fine Australian wines appeal not only to the Australian palate but also to the cognoscente of Great Britain. Black Bordeaux is rightly praised as a peppermint flavoured Burgundy, whilst a good Sydney syrup can rank with any of the world's best sugary wines. Quite the reverse is true of Chateau Chanda, which is an Appalachian on eh? specially grown for those keen on regurgitation. Oh.
1: Australian wine was known as Chateau Chanda from Down Under. When I was thinking
2: about writing the book, I wanted to find single drinks that could tell a much bigger story. And the story of Australia's relationship with um, the mother country, with Britain, uh, through uh, wine exports, since the beginning, since, since 1788, there was a vision for Australia to become the vineyard of the empire. And that, that vision has ebbed and flowed throughout history. There have been periods in history where we've sent more wine to, to England than the French or the Italians or the Spanish. Uh, and this wine, Kangarooge, appeared at a time in the 70s when we, weren't, we were sending hardly any wine to, to the UK at all. And what we were sending was a bit of a joke. It literally, I mean the Monty Python sketch was, you know, Shadow Chunder and Perth Pink and all those things and, and that was more like documentary than than, uh, than comedy uh, and this this wine, Kangaroo and I thought, well, how did this wine come to be? What does the story of that wine tell us about that that dip in our relationship with England and England's relationship with our wine industry? Um, so that's why I chose that one and I knew Oz Clark had a bottle and I was in London and I thought, hey Oz, do you mind if, if we sit down and, and and open a bottle, of course, very very uh, amenable, um, hospitable kind of guy, uh, and we didn't just open that one; we opened a few more from his cellar after we'd after we'd had that one because it was awful.
0: Ah, it's a sort of colour. It's uh, <laughs> it's giving you very much pleasure at the moment. It's it's incredible. The first glass is as about as clear as. <laughs> A bowl of shaving cream. I
2: really, really appreciate you doing that.
0: It's so often I give a man a really disgusting drink (laughs) and he says, I really appreciate that. Shadonite Shadonite It's the upmarket drink of today
1: it's a when you're in a like Barry Humphreys in the character of Sir Les Patterson singing his Chardonnay song, Oz Clark's bottle of Rouge went off, making it hard to imagine how wine from Australia could ever be taken seriously again. But wine's mercurial and magical, embodying both Bacchus and his goat.
0: Bacchus was worshipped by the Romans and in Roman times uh, individuals and families would choose their own god to worship out of the whole pantheon of gods. Now, one of the most popular gods was Bacchus, particularly for Roman legionaries. But when you actually look particularly in the little shrines that these soldiers would have, they have depictions of Bacchus as a young man, as a beautiful young man, but he's always got his pet goat. Now, an old goat, and you think, what, you know, why would Bacchus have, as a pet, a goat? It's because it's trying to show the duality of wine. So you have one or two cups of wine, and you are inspired, you are the gilded youth, you are happy, you feel younger again, you talk gaily and happily. However, you have too much wine and you suddenly turn into an old goat. So it's, it's a little bit of a warning there in that depiction that just enough wine is okay, too much, and you'll become the old goat.
1: This is the story of wine, Australian wine. It's the taste of the past and a chance to sit, glass in hand, noting how this country has changed both its image and palate, all of which involves getting back to the cellar door and back into the vineyard.
3: This is our bottom block and these are all Shiraz and they are the ones that are very vigorous because we've had good rain. So there's a good canopy, there's been a good crop, a great crop. You can see we've put out the buckets, everything's hand-picked, so the buckets are out underneath each vine and each vine at the moment is probably producing five or six kilos of fruit. Uh, I'm Jenny Houghton and this is Magars Hill Vineyard at Longwood in Victoria. I absolutely adore being outside. And I guess it harks back to being part of the cycle. So you we're harvesting now, taking the grapes off now. That's been progressing for 12 months. And then there'll be a lull where we'll do maintenance and make sure that there's great root growth. And then it'll they'll go dormant, all those leaves will turn autumnal and they'll be dormant for a few weeks and then about almost exactly September 23rd, they'll burst again and we start again.
1: On, uh, radio.
3: Australians were, were renowned in the 60s and 70s for taking a big wine and putting lots of oak on it and over oaking it. We finessed. And now we've got the young audience or consumer group that are really appreciative and, dare I say, um, discerning. It's like a hand-knitted jumper. People really can appreciate it, a hand-knitted jumper, as opposed to the mass produced, in a way. And I think there's been a massive educational process. People are going off and doing wine courses. They're going off and working in the vineyard with people. There's now three or four unis that are offering vineyard, uh, viticulture, etc. But I might just say that we just... I just need to let you know that 95% of a really good wine is made in the vineyard. If you get the grapes right, the right intensity of flavour sugar, the size of the berries, take out the winemaker and it's just really a no-brainer. They just put the polish on it. Where the winemaker comes to the fore is when you've got fruit that's okay, then their skills are really 100% utilised. But it's delightful for me to be able to say to the the winemaker, well I'm sending you fabulous fruit, you can just put the polish on it. And that's the difference really between a silver medal, a gold medal and a trophy. But winemaker
1: Chris Barnes may not completely agree. Chris is one of those viticulture teachers ushering in the new generation of finesse. Only, he's doing it in a historic winery in central Victoria called Dookie
0: it's a winery that was purpose-built in the 1890s the closest date we have for the completion and the first vintage is 1896 to be honest it may be a year before or after that when they're actually making wine in here but certainly this is it's old by australian standards it's solid brick um, it's uh, two and three layers of brick uh, and it's built into the side of the hill so Effectively, three quarters of it is underground, which gives it extraordinarily good uh, properties in terms of the thermal mass. And it means today, 100 plus years later, we still don't have to have refrigeration in here to keep the environment cool.
1: Just being in this space is a demonstration of how the old meets the new.
0: Okay, so it comes in the doors here, and it then comes in here and we do the fermentation I should also point out in terms of the history this is the old wine making area and these are the old vats here because can you see up there where there was a hole in the ceiling and it's been boarded in but what the grapes would have come in up there you know on in baskets same as those but wicker baskets and then upstairs there would have been a hand operated crusher and the crusher and de-stemmer would then have that crushed grapes and they would have had made out of timber and canvas, like a chute arrangement, that they would then come down and it would go into these fermenters.
1: So what Chris sells when he sells the Shiraz that his students make here, is the story of this winery and these grapes. Every bottle has a picture and a description of the old building on the back. This not only adds to the flavour, it is the flavour, because wine knows where it comes from and can express that connection to place.
2: I've been writing about wine for almost 30 years. And one of the most rewarding and and fascinating things about the wine community in that time in Australia is how people are talking more and more about this connection to the country where they grow their grapes. And as I say, the French have this word called terroir, but we're not in France. So can we think of another idea for this this sense of of difference or or uniqueness in in each of these sites? And one of the ways of perhaps approaching that idea of coming up with an Australian way of talking about these, these differences of, of countryside, is to engage with Aboriginal notions of connection to country and, and this idea that different parts of Australia have been inhabited by discrete groups of people for we don't know how long, and they have a very, very rela- uh, strong relationship to that country. That is, and a language, and a set of beliefs, and uh, a, a way of managing the country that is different to a group of people a couple of hundred kilometres away. And this, this sense that this Aboriginal notion of connection to country—that you are, a, uh, that you belong to the land, that you are a custodian of the land a very, very similar language that wine people use traditionally. They feel like they're custodians. You often talk about wine growers uh, being, you know, custodians of their vineyard, that all they're there to do is, is to allow the land ex- to express itself in the flavour of the wine in your glass. And so I, I just felt, it just felt to me like that there, were, there were these parallel conversations and that perhaps these two groups should be talking to each other.
1: And they are. This is a 2020 bottle of wine with an acknowledgement of country printed on the back.
2: It's not really, it's not like a cork. That's light, isn't it? Beautiful. So, this is a Pinot Noir from the Yarra Valley. What I find interesting here is it's also on the back label got an acknowledgement of country so it says the Yarra Valley is Wurundjeri country we acknowledge and pay our respects to the people who belong to the lands on which these wines are now grown and this is something you're seeing more often on wine labels but what you, what you would normally find is this kind of talk on a wine label single vineyard wine from upper silurian silkstone derived soil what does that mean? Does that mean anything to it? It means something to uh, a geologist, perhaps. Um, but it does not Does that kind of capture the, 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 the notion of country? You put that with the acknowledgement as well, uh, and you've, you've got this suggestion that you know it is, it is, this wine is rooted in a place, in a, in a geology, but it's also rooted in a, in a culture. And that's what wine's all about, isn't it?
3: What do you think? It's beautiful.
1: Max Allen is sipping this drink in a Melbourne restaurant called Charcoal Lane. This social enterprise is one which provides young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people with training and support.
2: That's delicious.
1: The restaurant aims to celebrate the story of Indigenous ingredients by paying respect to Australia's culture, heritage, and environment. But that's not all that easy when it comes to wine.
2: This development of acknowledgement of country on wine labels, of Winemakers, wine growers, um, a lot of it's being driven by individual producers' personal interest in wanting to engage with a broader conversation about black and white Australia. It's a way of connecting with that reconciliation process that some people might have a problem with. Because even though I don't think of wine as... as alcohol. Obviously, I like to drink it because of the buzz it gives me and I'm I'm, I'm aware that it is alcohol. If if I just wanted alcohol, I'd just drink vodka or something or or I'd just drink straight alcohol with water in it, like a hard seltzer or something, you know, (laughs) Uh, something without any soul or history or culture. But I don't. I choose to drink wine because of this multi-layered wrapping that it comes with. And yet at the same time, for a lot of people, wine is just another form of alcohol. And there is a ethical or moral problem there in having lofty conversations about acknowledgement of country with a product that has done so much harm in Aboriginal communities for the last 250 years.
1: And as problematic as it is, this conversation is inevitable. We are now seeing a huge demand right across Australia for local produce and local wine. The trend's been given a boost by COVID, but pandemic aside, it's been driven by people who want to relate to the land where they live. Tasting wine leads to thinking about grapes and grapevines, place, people, history, and the relationship between all those things. And it brings us back to acknowledging country in a wide variety of ways.
3: After many months and weeks of growing, one of the nicest sounds is this the first plop of a bunch of grapes into the bucket. For some reason, it's quite exhilarating.
0: What changed dramatically in Australia and the perception of the Australian consumer was if it's got an association of place, be it the Yarra Valley, the Hunter, Clarenvale, or whether it's here in the Goulburn Valley, in the Gamby, whether it's the Dookie Hills, where we are, then it has quality because it's got place. Those two things, in food and wine are part of the world landscape of wine. So the Australian consumer recognised that there was place in wine and place is always value.
3: I get so many people here to this very small cellar door where people are a little tired of the commercial... Cellar door, yes. People don't need much. And, you know, the joy on people's faces. I knew where the people were from when the cellar door opened because the bigger the grin, the tighter the lockdown. And the weekend that people got out of lockdown, the joy was incredible. And one of the pluses, if there are any, of this COVID pandemic is that we're getting so much domestic tourism now and people are appreciating, not that they, I didn't have a sense that they didn't appreciate before, but people are so appreciative of what's on their back doorstep. I didn't know that Gurham Falls was here and I didn't know that the Strathbogies had such lovely views and such good restaurants and pubs now and cellar doors. So genuinely appreciative of what's right here.
1: And that's what happens when wine's on the kitchen table. I'm Hetty McKinnon. Thanks to our producer, Lynn Gallagher and sound engineer, Angie Grant, for shouting us this round. Coming up next time in this Taste of the Past series, one of my favorite ingredients, spice. In the meantime, from the history lesson and everyone here on ABC RN, cheers.